Hello and welcome to another edition of Humanitarian AI Today, a podcast series produced by the Humanitarian AI Meetup Groups in Cambridge, San Francisco, New York City, London, Toronto and Zurich. Today we're interviewing two very special guests who are actually friends as well. Susie Mai, hello Susie, and Jeremy McCain. Welcome to Humanitarian AI Today. Thanks so much for joining us. Please jump in and introduce yourself, Susie. Hi, Mia. Hi. Well, great. Thank you so much for having us on. Yeah, I'm Susie. Hi, everybody. My name is Susie Mai. I am Mia's friend. I am a professional kite surfer, and now I'm an ocean activist, ocean entrepreneur. And together with Jeremy McCain here, uh, we organized something called the Ultramarine Ocean Summit. Great. Which I'm going to tell you a little bit more about. But yes, obviously, my spirit animal is also on this call. So, Jeremy. <laughs> Uh, it's, we are, we're dual spirit animals together. This is great. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm Jeremy McCain, and I'm also the co-host, co-founder of Ultramarine with Susie. But my background is in technology and uh, art, and I like to fuse the two together to get people to think a little bit differently about the oceans and where we're going to go from here, because that seems to be the biggest question right now on everybody's minds. Absolutely. And that brings us to our very first interview on the ocean. So it's just such a great, great opportunity to get your voices and, and what you've done. And this is so amazing to have you both talking ocean with humanitarian AI meetup audience. Shall we start with this passion you both have and what you've created? Do you want to share the ultramarine story? Is that a good place to start? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think Jeremy and I met by fate somehow. We're very, very similar, but very, very different people. He's more the nerd creative artist <laughs> person, not that he's not very athletic. He's also very good underwater because he's obviously a great underwater photographer. But And I'm a professional kite surfer, first and foremost. That's how I started off in life. But we both developed, I think, a very strong love for the ocean. And that's really what connected us from the first moment that we met. And we kind of said, you know, we seem to have a good complement of ideas and network and things that we could do. And we both like to take action immediately. We're both very impatient, sort of ADD people. And uh, I think that's what, it, what really was like, all right, you know, take, it takes one to know one, right? And I think from that moment on, we were like, all right, what are we going to do together? And we decided, well, let's combine all our forces and create something called the Ultramarine Ocean Summit, where we build a community of all kinds of different people, entrepreneurs, artists, venture capitalists, you know, private sector, people from government, people from policy, people from science and research, all these different types of groups that we wanted to bring together for something that's fun and not too doom and gloom and very light and fluffy and helps people sort of understand that not only the ocean is a huge life support system, but how to help in everyday life sort of support, you know, the, the general protection of it. It's a massive collaboration and talking about the inspiration and keeping something like this um, buoyant is, is so important. And Jeremy, you're, gosh, we, we call you Mr. Ocean uh, lovingly and, and I know how, how much you love data and, you know, the, the kind of undertakings, counting fish and things we've talked about. Gosh, how's it going? What's, yeah, I mean, what's on your mind? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, Ultramarine provides kind of like this really great sense of community. And I think, you know, when we, when Susie and I are together, it's like, we're kind of like a human version of a Venn diagram, right? Like there's things that she does, there's things that I do, but we overlap in certain areas and we complement each other 
And this is what the basis of this community building is, is because ultimately all of us have these subset of skills. And right. essentially for, for Ocean, uh, which is that we call the company Ocean, by the way, it's OCN, it's a ticker on the Ethereum blockchain, OCNI to be specific. And um, we call it Ocean. But the idea is, is if we can leverage everybody's technologies and the things that they're working on and bring them together, well, that's something that's actually really important because the one thing that I found out was that people in the ocean space, surprise, surprise, as with, with many other spaces, they don't always work together. And so instead of berating people of why they should be doing something a certain way, Suze and I just thought, well, why don't we just lead by example and let's bring the people that want to play and let's 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 bring on the others as they catch on. And so, um, but, you know, you know I, I'm fascinated with the ocean. I'm fascinated yeah. with the data that we have yet to explore from the ocean, uh, because I see this as a tools to explore yet not to exploit. Absolutely. So important. And um, how do you navigate that? Yeah. So very carefully uh, is, yeah. is the short answer, <laughs> um, uh, you know, gosh. but, but for, for what we're trying to do is we were wanting to find ways to, you know, there's data that's already out there, right? The people are, have had sensors in the ocean for such a long time. NOAA's got programs that they're doing. And thanks to the Freedom of Information Act, we can have access to some of this stuff. The problem is, is that much of this is low frequency, low resolution data. And that doesn't do too well when we talk about catastrophes, because, you know, let's imagine a tornado is coming to your house. You don't want the tornado that was coming to your house like five years ago. You want the one that's coming in the next 15 minutes. So, um, you know, we really wanted to be able to put something together to where we can help not only better understand our our environment, but also, you know, let's let's do something. Let's 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 come together as a as a human society before these things become catastrophes. And and that's kind of the the thing that really ignited what we're working on. Absolutely, it's such a vast and, as Brent said earlier, intimidating thought to think about the ocean and what's needed there and we'd love to just learn from you both your ability to impact the massiveness of you know pollution overfishing fixing these incomprehensible challenges how do you approach it is there a methodology behind it like what i know you're both very actionable people so how would you describe a process you found is really really impactful um do you want to pick an example of something you've noticed that that you're like wow this this is really cool i think one of the main things for me would be the example of just what happens when you bring people together right and that's really what we are trying to do first and foremost is just unite people from all types of different scenarios and give them the right amount of inspiration and that's when you really see stuff coming together very very quickly i mean all it takes is a few like-minded people and, you know, you're just exponentially adding to your ideas and just growing it in a way that you would never be able to grow it on your own. So I think that's always, for me, the first thing. And it doesn't really matter what problem it is. You can apply human brains to everything. And, and that's really, for me, where it starts. And also, I think just the education and the messaging. I know, you know, we obviously know what's going on because we're in the field. But there are still many people out there who still don't know about ocean problems. They don't know that every second breath they take comes from the ocean. And then, of course, it's going to be a little bit more difficult for them to get on board with, say, some, you know, activist cause. And mm -hmm. I, I feel like even just the base message 
of how beautiful the ocean is and how vital and important, I think that's also a big piece of it. Yeah. And that just reminded me of our total ocean godmother, um, Dr. Sylvia Earle, and her words, you know, about awareness is everything. And you've said this, Jeremy said this, um, you know, just to this audience, what does ocean awareness look like? Maybe, Jeremy, do you have any insights there? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, when when we we think about the oceans and we think about the vastness, about every second breath and these little amazing uh, uh, phytoplankton called Prochlorococcus and their carbon buddies called coccolithophores that actually use uh, photosynthesis to create the second breath, you know, we realize really quickly that every single one of us, whether we're in a landlocked city like Dallas, Texas, or we live in San Francisco, we are all connected by the oceans, whether we like it or not. And so I don't think that anyone goes out and says, you know, I, you know, I had a good day yesterday. Today, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to do something to destroy the ocean. But we all destroy the ocean by our passive actions. And so I think when we become aware of what those things are, and this is where data comes in, right, then I think we can come back and say, I'm going to make some changes, you know, and, and, and I don't think that, and for the record, I don't think that seven point, what are we at now? 7.7 billion people on the planet. I don't think that telling 7.7 billion people that they should all change, that that's somehow going to miraculously fix the issue because I see these as top down solutions, right? You know, but I do think that there could be five, 10, 15 million people that have effect on 7.7 billion people. And that's really what we should aim to focus on. Yeah, and I can't help thinking of COVID-19 right now and how many behaviours have changed globally just like that. I'm just wondering what that crisis, you know, what can we get? What's the silver lining for the ocean there and what can we jump on and perhaps, you know, do better? Any, Any thoughts there? I'll jump in real quick. I mean, I think uh, now more than any other time in, in our our history, our parents' history, or even our grandparents' history, we see how interwoven and interconnected our ecosystem is and how we play a vital role in that. And so that was a rapid uh, example of ex- how quickly this, this uh, system that we've kind of put together um, can quickly get unraveled. The environmental space is just a slower process, right? It's, it's like a it's like a, a frog getting boiled into a, a frying pan. Not that I've ever done it, but you know, it's it's a slow process. You, eventually, as the temperature gets hot, um, you don't know the, notice the changes. But we notice a rapid shift with COVID nineteen, and I think we can use this as an example to say, you know what? Well, we're going to make some changes in regards to how we interact with each other. But from the environmental perspective, it's the same song, different verse, but how will we shift? How will we adapt? And I think that that's, I think more people are starting to be aware of this. Yeah. And I just wonder if Brent has any kind of data questions that are more specific to the meetup group, the the humanitarian AI community. Actually, thinking about something you said about how we all view the oceans, how do you find others view the oceans in other countries other than Western countries? Yeah, well, I think it's important to recognize that over a billion people around the world rely on the ocean for as a food source. And so when you have uh, someone in the Solomon Islands that is, you know, in a dugout uh, canoe that's fishing and you ask them, uh, have you noticed any changes in the period of time that you've been alive and fishing? And they say, well, the fish has gotten short, meaning that it's becoming harder and harder for them to, to provide for their families they don't realize that the overall global community is making an impact on their food supply. And so, and you know, sometimes we like to demonize individuals who are killing sharks in, say, Papua New Guinea or wherever else. 
So for the record, it's a bad thing. Don't kill sharks, right? We need them. They're apex predators. If we see sharks, it's a good sign that we actually have a healthy ecosystem. But at the end of the day, these individuals are just trying to provide for their families. It's Again, it goes back to the upstream. It's the influence from the, the bigger, stronger uh, countries that are, that are putting the pressure to say, hey, you know what? We want the fins. We want the sharks. Um, it's going into our cosmetics. It's going into our food. It's going into our, our sports drinks. So, you know, I think... Just like the environment, our uh, social economic system is so interwoven and deeply connected and to compartmentalize it, I think, would be a mistake. When you work in other countries, you find that there's a lot of conspiracy theories about what aid actors are up to. And I just realized that on the Solomon Islands, maybe people, when a Westerner comes there and says, you need to stop doing this or that, maybe there's some conspiracy theories there that are, that are good to surprise people. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that there's, you know, for instance, when I go to Jamaica, right, it's like I, I'm coming from the United States, and I might as well be an alien from another planet. Like, I, I've not lived in Jamaica. I've not had to provide for my family in that same way before. So sometimes it's hard for me to come there and say, oh, well, this is what you should be doing. Not that I do that. But at the same time, I think it's important for us all to to kind of realize that, you know, we all are different, you know. And one thing I've often said is that if we're in a place where we say, hey, you know, we need to protect these waters, we can't just say, okay, you know, we did a good job. We convinced these guys to protect, protect their waters. And then we walk away and they're looking at each other. It's like, hey, bro, like, how are we going to get food? We're going to be hungry over here. So it's better that if we remove one, one type of economic driver because it's not good for the environment, then we need to come up with ways to reintroduce new economic concepts, which is, very, which is the whole basis of what we're trying to do at Ocean. That's great. I love the um, attention to the field. And I think this is where Susie's amazing at really connecting to people. And I remember she first, uh, you first, Susie, you've, you first really kind of noticed the problem with oceans through, you know, your kite surfing and you galvanized just an army of ocean defenders. Really, I've, I've watched that scale up and it's just <laughs> immense. And thank you. It's because you care, really, isn't it? You know, you you care so much that that just becomes infectious. Well, I think it's, yeah, I mean, it's like I was saying, it's maybe it's low hanging fruit at first because the surfers and the kiters, for me, it's my bread and butter, of course. If the ocean gets trashed, I can no longer kite surf. I can't do my job. This is my thinking. Um, of course, that's the obvious train of thought. But then people like in Jamaica or in these islands where they really do see the ocean as their life support system. I mean, I think we all share that in a sense. And I think that's why we're kind of rallying the troops really who have that core base, just love and passion for the ocean to to sort of drive it, drive it forward. What are you finding now that everyone's got the shelter in place, all your (laughs) friends and pro athletes, what are they doing in this time? What's inspiring you? I'm honestly really loving all of the creative ways in which people are coming up with doing their thing at home. I mean, I have a skydive buddy who put out a little video of him in his skydiving suit with a hairdryer in his face, you know, pretending <laughs> to skydive in his living room that's and then throws out his parachute onto the couch. It's hilarious. Awesome. Um, I think that's been really fun to see just humans get creative and do stuff from home and really continue to be connected to each other. I think that's been a very, very interesting piece of it. And yeah, I think people are paying attention to overall health, to their own health, um, which is very interlinked with planetary health. I think we're going to hopefully reemerge from this crisis with a little bit more focus on 
the imminent dangers of not taking care of the carbon emission problem and going back to wearing masks, but this time because we can't actually breathe the air in our atmosphere anymore, right? So I think it's been a great wake-up call. Hopefully it's been enough of a shake for everyone to, to really pay attention a little bit more because we are really, and Jeremy will agree with me there, we are right at the apex right now. We need to turn the corner yesterday on a lot of these, of these things. And that's, I think, coronavirus has helped in that sense, hopefully psychologically with the global mentality to be like, let's get everyone and the planet healthy after this. Yeah. And I think, Jeremy, you mentioned the other day something interesting, like we were talking about UN's SDGs as sustainability, uh, sustainable development goals. And the idea of regeneration was intriguing. Did you want to maybe share more on that concept, that idea of regeneration in, in an actionable way? Yeah. I mean, for those that don't know, the United, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals are basically you know, 17 goals of, of uh, a number of different things. One that obviously I talk a lot about is number 14, which is life below water. But even though they're called the sustainable de development goals, we really need to think really closely about this word sustainability. I actually hate it. I like the word regeneration because why would I want to sustain a crisis? Because that's where we are. And, you know, I think a really good example of how regeneration plays a role and how quickly it happens. Um, well, there's a bunch of reasons now, now that people are, are in, their, in their homes and not using their cars. But m probably my most favorite one is a Mission Blue case study that was done in a little place in Mexico called Cabo Plumo. And the really cool part about this is that uh, Dr. Sylvia Earle had told me when she was telling me about this story a couple years ago, she said, you know, there really wasn't much of a, any kind of sharks. There really wasn't much of any kind of fish to speak of. It, they had all been overfished, and uh, there was pollution. There was just a number of issues. Um, the government and all, and, and this is not just government, by the way. There was local buy-in that said, you know what? We're actually going to not go in this area. We're going to block it off. And they did for 15 years, one to five. Sylvia said after the 15 years was over and they opened it back up, she went diving in there. She saw sharks. She saw jacks. She saw just the most colorful fish. And she said, Jeremy, this is what I remember the oceans to be 50 years ago. So this gives us some kind of hope that if we just leave ourselves out of the picture for just a short amount of time, the oceans can rebound in ways that will probably boggle our, our imagination. But, you know, we got to do it. We got to do it. And the thing is that Sylvia will say, she says, like, no point in history have we ever known. We know. And now we must do something. Yeah. And we're seeing this more and more with COVID on the ground as well. I think in my hometown, they've got kangaroos back in the city of Adelaide. They're hopping along, which I think is adorable. As um, you do. Yeah. In, yeah, I don't know what's happening in your neck of the woods. Uh, have you seen anything, Brent, in your neighborhood? What's different? It's nice to have it quieter and price of gas down, yet fewer yeah. cars on the road. Normally when gas price is low, there's more cars on the road, but it's great to have less on there. You yeah. mentioned them rebounding. This is a good time to talk about data. It's great to have, um, you know, by understanding what the baseline is now, we can understand whether we're doing better, where we need more efforts. Where, where do you see data playing a role and synergies around data collection and themes you know, yes so, so for me it's really exciting right because you know as a kid like i i think every kid wanted to be an astronaut 
I remember being five years old and I said, there's two things that I want to do. And, and I'm, I remember having this thought as I was sitting on an airplane by myself for the very first time at five going to visit my grandma and I could hear the engines roaring. And next thing you know, I'm rocketing into, into what seemed to be space for me. And I said, okay, that's it. When I'm older, I'm going to be a pilot and I'm going to be a scuba diver because I already love the water. But, but you know, the real crime, I think, is that humans know more about space than their own oceans. And so in many ways, the ocean is the final frontier when it comes to human understanding. And so I think it's really interesting. You know, I said in the very beginning that these tools should be used for exploration and not exploitation. And one of the ways that um, I see this as a, as a, a benefit for the record, I'm not anti-fishing, but I definitely think that we should stop fishing for 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 a time because I think we've we've kind of run its course almost to near extinction in many places. In one case, uh, the tuna populations in the last five years have been eradicated up to 97 percent. That's just ridiculous. And so, but how do we really know, right? And so, um, you know, I, I would sit down with different people and I would say, hey, this water that you have here, you've got such and such company or you have another country coming in here, they're paying you a fee. Let's just Let's just throw some numbers out just so that we understand from a business perspective. Let's say you own a country and you gave $150,000 licenses for uh, Susie's country to come extract uh, fish out of your, your waters. She comes in and you tell her, look, that's your license. Whatever you can carry, you can keep. And she says, great, thanks. She leaves with $10 million worth of assets. That does not make real good business sense for you. Um, and, and in time, you're going to be out of business. Now, if you had a warehouse, you probably would have people that would audit the stock and you would know exactly what your inventory was. So you could actually determine when you needed to restock and all these other kinds of things, right? But we don't really do that with the oceans. We create marine protected areas and we have an idea how effective they are. But, you know, these are not my ideas. Um, I was able to kind of really listen to indigenous leaders that taught me the concept of the tambu, as they say in Fiji, or tapu in the Polynesian uh, culture. And this is this, this concept of, you know, hey, you know what? We're not going to go out and we're not going to fish in this area. We're not even going to go there. And I was talking to um, the paramount uh, chief of the Lao group a couple years ago. He was on with us and he took us to his his place. And I was on an expedition with TBA 21. And he says, um, I said to him, I said, uh, Rokasau explain to me this tambu. Like, how does it work? How do you know when to create a tambu? And how do you know when to get rid of it? He says, ah, oh, it's easy. When we have little fish, we make the tambu. We go count the fish, we count the fish, we count the fish. And when we have fish, we release the tambu. And I was like, why, why, how is that? That's just genius. Why don't we do that here? So I've, Absolutely. I've now Brilliant. gone back and said, well, I can't get a bunch of kids out of college to go jump in the water and start counting fish. But what if we could train machines to do this? What if we could use Google's TensorFlow and uh, other tools to be able to do, uh, you know, vi visual recognition, machine learning? And then beyond that, how do we use environmental DNA to look at various genomic markers to start to recognize trends and analysis? And so I think we're really on this cusp of this, this enlightenment period where we start to really understand our, our shared environment, where the common heritage of mankind, as it's called. Um, and I think data plays a really vital role in that. And we're building drones that, that autonomously grab this data. We're building drones that, that will intercept bad guys that are illegally fishing that aren't supposed to. So we're trying to put all the things in place so that we can all kind of harmoniously live together in this shared environment. Wow. I love the common heritage of mankind. I'm just 
Actually, humankind. So, we got to change that. It's the common uh, heritage of humankind. humankind. I always say that's mankind. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's great. And just living in the U.S. for me has been so different. And having that statement come from you, Jer- Jeremy, that's just beautiful. Very, very optimistic. Hearing that, Susie, what are you optimistic about? Optimistic. I mean, I'm always optimistic, especially now with all of the recent shakedowns. I mean, yeah, you know, you've seen all the data come in for the very first time in 50 years. We actually see what a break could look like and do for the planet. I'm very optimistic about hopefully um, lots of people coming out of this and paying a little bit more attention to the ocean. And, and, you know, you can really be it from any walk of life and help something or someone around you achieve a certain goal. And all you have to do is look around your own community and figure out, okay, maybe there's a local sea sponge that needs saving in my area. And guess what? People are actually doing beach cleanups and hoping to repopulate this. You did lots way before any of this. I remember you were doing shark tagging and and that kind of loops back into what Jeremy was saying. I feel like it's always been quite easy just because when you're passionate about something, you just kind of dive into it. So doing the odd beach cleanup you know, picking things up that you see on the beach, obviously that's a very, very small step. But then you can go as far as Jeremy and I have gone, I guess, which is devoting your entire life and figuring out how do you use your skill set to actually make a bigger difference. And say you're an accountant or you're building furniture, there's just no area of life where you can't introduce a little bit of conservation or a little bit of eco into your life. And so I feel like that's been the main thing, just going around, meeting all these different people that really show you that you can do something no matter who you are. I like that, a little bit of eco into your life, absolutely, because <laughs> Brent and I were chatting earlier at the, the vastness of this and how do you begin to even unpack it? And I think data helps us know more. I don't know, Brent, were you ready to ask anything on the data side? And Susie knows a lot of data from the field as well. I was actually thinking about that because in surfing, I've surfed most of my life. And it's funny because we're almost like the first explorers in all these remote beaches and crazy countries and things like that. And we we get to see firsthand what's going on in these remote places. And I don't know if the Surf Rider Foundation or other foundations are doing more to sort of empower surfers to report what they're seeing. Yeah, I mean, it's it's everywhere. And not only is it trash that's produced locally, but in many places like the north of Brazil, you know, you're seeing trash on the beaches that have Asian labels on them, just, you know, trash that floated all across two or three oceans before it ended up on that beach. So yeah, just I mean, that's, I guess, the first data you collect is the one with your own eyeballs. And, you know, again, we're the low hanging fruit, because we're everywhere on all these beaches, and we can really see what's going on. But I think those are also the people who are the most motivated. Like you mentioned, the Surfrider Foundation, you know, anyone who's in water, anything is currently for sure applying their knowledge to some eco or environmental issue. And and it's been really great to see just before. And I feel like it's been three, four, five years. We've really seen a little bit more of a shift. But I think at this point, if you're either in sort of in water sports, definitely even winter sports, um, just a lot of my peers have been en- engulfed in it more than ever now. The, the crisis of plastic pollution, this is a big deal. And then the microplastics, uh, is this ever going to go away? Or Well, yeah, we have to figure out basically how to not create any trash is kind of the ultimate solution. We're the only animal on planet Earth that doesn't 
that actually creates anything that's left over right after we depart. So we have to just figure out how to get not only circular as Jeremy likes it, you know, not create trash, but also take a lot of the stuff out of the ocean that we've put in. And that's totally possible. Even the microplastics, you know, there are ways of taking some of those out. There are ways of filtering things. We heard about a new bacteria that might be a piece of biotech that could help with removing microplastics from a body of water. So really, there are wonderful, wonderful things out there that people are inventing and researching. Um, we also had a very, very cool sponsor at the Ultramarine Ocean Summit this year. They're, they're, um, they're called Standard Graphene, and they're working on graphene technology, which is obviously amazing for water filtration, takes out heavy metals, and has just a, amongst its many qualities, an un unbelievable way of cleaning up water. And so just seeing, yeah, just seeing that there are a lot, there's a lot of work to be done, but there are a lot of solutions out there to actually reverse um, and take out all of the stuff that we've put in, not just the plastic, but arsenic, acidity, heavy metals, all these different things you just don't want in your water supply system in the, in the earth. Um, it's time to take stuff out. But yeah, Jeremy might have another thought on that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's also important, too, to kind of, like, visualize really what the issue is. You know, I mean, I think, you know, Susie's right. There are some really cool technologies, but I often like to bring everybody back down to, say, their home, right? If you opened up the bathroom door and you just saw water gushing everywhere, what's the first thing you're going to grab to fix the problem? It's not going to be a mop, and it's not going to be a bucket. You're going to you're gonna stop the bleeding, right? You're going to shut that water off and then go back and do damage control. Well, and, and I think, you know, I think that we really need to think about you know, how are we treating this, this, this culture, right? You know, I, I feel like I, I feel like a broken record, but I don't actually see plastic as a problem. I don't see single use as a problem. I see our culture as a whole society as a problem. And I think when we realize that, we realize that, you know, my, my friend at Parlay for the Oceans, Cyril Gooch says, you know, he goes, he goes, uh, he goes, we haven't designed is he goes, plastic is a design failure. He goes, we haven't designed the end of end of cycle. He's right. And I think that when we think about things like this, we say, okay, well, how do we stop the bleeding? How do we, how does the, how does the plastic get into the water in the first place? And I think when we start to do that, then we can kind of start to backtrack, but, but by solving problems with PR first, which is what some companies have done when they talk about cleaning up the ocean, it doesn't really do any of us any favors. But I think we really, really closely need to look at our culture and, and try to really figure out. And I think COVID-19 has kind of presented this this disrupt in, in kind of in some ways a bad way. You know, I think uh, that recently the Associated Press published an article about um, how they're finding uh, used masks and, and gloves all over the waterways. I don't know. I, I think about this a lot. It's something that's near and dear to my heart. Uh, Dr. Jane Goodall once said that, and she re she was associating this to poverty, but I also believe it, it it's here as well. She says, you know, we cannot expect people to think about conservation when they're hungry and their children are hungry. You know, we must first solve poverty before we start thinking about conservation. Well, when people are dying and they're they're stuck in the hospital, they're afraid because they don't know what the next day holds. They're not thinking about conservation, but we have to think about this as a systemic problem not necessarily just this one little silo of just how do we solve plastic pollution? How do we solve overfishing? It's all interconnected. Yeah. And going back to the exploitation factor and it kind of makes me think of your, your really good friend, um, Paula Rosalos. We, we talked a little bit about what the background of plastic pollution was in her home in the Philippines. And she said, 
people were used to things being wrapped in banana leaves or you know natural things and then when plastic came in it was just the most natural behavior for them to just throw plastic the way they would a banana leaf so i i think there's a lesson there yeah that also happened in tonga and and the education factor i'm seeing like this single use plastic movement has taken off but now we've taken a step back with the masks and the proliferation of the single use packaging where we're just like you know everyone's just getting packaging 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 and you know i think that's been an overconsumption i don't know what the data on that is and and how that relates to our ocean conversation but it's all interconnected well, I, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of Lord Kelvin, and he once said that if we were to improve something, we must first measure it, correct? So when we don't measure things, how could we possibly know how to improve them? And that, that's, that's really the fundamental concept of what we've built with Ocean, is that we wanted to be able to say, okay, here are some, here's empirical facts that we can't argue with, and how will we intervene? How will we mitigate some of these, these threats? And so... Um, the, the real challenge for a lot of places, um, academia, government, is that some of these sensors are very expensive. And so, you know, a university might fund a, a $100,000 sensor to do this one little thing. And then after that grant is up, they, they shelve the sensor. What we want to do is we want to essentially be the Uber of scientific sensors where we have these things out in the water all the time. And, you know, you just buy time on it just like you would a satellite, right? You want time on the satellite? We'll jump in line pay your fee, and Bob's your uncle. And I think once we start doing that, we have all of this data, I think we start to look at the world in a very different way. I love that. I just was thinking about the surf buoys and the data that's, that's generated from those, and those are already that's out there and powered, and we could add more capabilities to those. 100%. Yep. And it's all, it's like Jeremy says, you know, you can't fix something if you don't know what the thing is and you don't have the data. So big data for the ocean is definitely the next big step and to consolidate that all in one place, I think is a huge undertaking. I think mm-hmm. Jeremy is the perfect person to try and do it. And I think, yeah, I think we're just going to hopefully see all of this tech sort of converge in the right direction so that it benefits everyone. I, I would like to add to that too, though. I think that all of those that are listening right now realize that, you know, you also have the power. Mark Cuban just said a quote just a couple days ago that I'm like, I'm such a Mark Cuban fan, by the way, not just because he's from Dallas, but I think he's just a cool dude. But he said, you don't need to be the leader to be a leader. And when we think about those things, I think, you know, when it comes to oceans and what we do, how we control our companies, that just rings true all the way through. I mean, it's the, it goes right back to Ultramarine and why we wanted to put this group together. Susie, earlier we, we were talking about, you know, you're bringing all these great people, bringing different skill sets to fight this battle. And you've created um, Ultramarine together with Jeremy. Do you want to just talk more about what Ultramarine has done in in the nearly two years since you know you you first launched your collaboration here and you mentioned earlier one of your graphene um, sponsors and just some of the things that have come out of this community that that maybe teach us how to um, you know how do you talk to each other how do you get things you know from from a problem to a solution perhaps does that make sense yeah yeah of course no of course i mean the first and foremost thing about ultramarine is that we just bring together a huge variety and very very colorful group so everyone's represented and of course we have a lot of ideas floating around and 
I think some of the cool, really great things that have come out of last year and this year include the, well, so from 2019, I know you were there, Mia, um, we had somebody who makes flip-flops in Dallas, for example, and this person came to Ultramarine, got very inspired, and decided to now try and make a flip-flop model that will dissolve in the ocean and turn into fish food if it ever ends up being trashed in the ocean and not, you know, essentially design an end to the product that fits in with planet Earth. And I mean, there are just an endless amount of little stories like that. But then, of course, huge stories as, for example, the one this year we managed to bring out, thanks to Jeremy, the First Lady of Palau, which is an island nation that has managed to protect 80% of its waters and is really one of the main pioneers in protecting their ocean and marine life. And the First Lady of Palau, who's a very high energy, matriarchal type of leader, um, came it's out. Good at karaoke. Yeah, not only, <laughs> not only sang karaoke with us, but also sat down with the BVI ministers in the British Virgin Islands and said, guys, this is what we have to do to protect the ocean here. Paired that with a few researchers and scientists who had some idea on how to actually implement these protections. And then we just got this beautiful thing done where we got the BVI motivated by a leader from a different nation. And out of it came a lot more ocean protection that was promised from the BVI side. And that's really something that happened in one or two days, right? All it took was getting it, the right people at the table, getting them together to talk about how it's done, and then immediately turning around and being like, there's absolutely no reason why we have to wait to do any of these things and getting them done, getting the actionable items done and helping them do it. Because for the most part, you know, everyone's now listening. We're now knocking on open doors. So if you come in with a great plan that leads to action right away, I think, you know, that's one of that's one of the keys. And so we've achieved small things and big things and everything in between at, at the Ultramarine Ocean Summit. Mm-hmm. And that's the entrepreneurial element. I wonder what our um, humanitarian actors can learn from from entrepreneurs. Jeremy, what you know, you're someone who kind of jumps in and out of both worlds. What? Yeah, I mean, what have you kind of got? Yeah, I think I think one of the one of the unique aspects of kind of what we've really put together on on Necker is, you know, first of all, I mean, let's let's just step back a little bit. I mean, come on, like you know, Richard Branson, his home, Necker Island. Uh, both of us are so grateful to be there in that place because, like, if we think about it, like this is where the Carbon War Room was created, the elders, and so. You know, and you when you look at those groups, what you saw wasn't a place of exclusivity. It was a place of inclusivity. And so early on, Susan and I were just like, let's find like the undiscovered genius. Like, let's find the entrepreneurs, the philanthropists, the investors, the politicians, everybody, because so many of those guys talk to themselves in their echo chambers, but they don't all talk together. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's where I see the jump. No, it's really important talking to each other, you know, bringing the right kind of people. And it kind of happens organically. I don't know. How did you? Yeah, no, I I hear you. That's great. And Brent, did you have anything there that? That, yeah, that you're no, curious no. to talk about because we're talking about the, the challenge of how do you how do you visualize this challenge and how do you you know how do you talk to each other how do you maybe have some ideas where volunteers could start you know volunteer data scientists or volunteer AI developers mm. where would you recommend they they look partners 
Yeah, well, I think it's one, I think you should start with passion because you're never going to do a project uh, as good as you would if you're not passionate about it. Nobody wants to work on a project that they hate. So, you know, in my case, I just happen to love the ocean and I saw that there was a vacuum of real quality data. You know, I, I ask scientists questions. I look, I'm not a scientist. Like, I mean, for goodness sakes, I dropped out of college, right? So uh, I, a lot of times I feel inadequate when I'm talking to these guys. But, you know, what's so great is like I, I because I ask so many dumb questions, I feel like sometimes I learn a lot. So, um, you know, I, I, I bring in I bring in the, the appropriate people and I say, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm trying to figure out how do I get this types of data sets? Like there's still things that I have so much to learn from. And my philosophy is always bringing the smartest people, you know, so th there is a huge need right now to um, to develop algorithms specifically for machine learning capabilities to recognize um, these different uh, environmental DNA uh, data sets that we get back, right? That the, Right now, that that is the new frontier. Um, I don't hear a lot of people talking about this stuff, but I hope one day that I can actually build tools that I can actually take water samples, analyze uh, environmental DNA in situ, and then transmit these, these variables uh, wirelessly so that we start to get real-time resolution data. Like, that's a really cool way to to work on things. You know, if a, if a data scientist wants to look at something, that's a really up and coming place. I mean, a lot of us already know how to use TensorFlow. A lot of us know how to use Watson and now Azure's got the, or the I don't know, is it as, I, my wife works for Microsoft and she gets mad at me for saying Azure because it's blue, but Azure as she calls it. Um, you know, there's all these different platforms um, that we can utilize to be able to run these algorithms, but some of these things don't exist. A friend that uh, is now a friend of mine that Susie introduced me to, Christian Sands, he once told me, he said, you know, it's not the algorithms that really matter when we talk about machine learning. It's the, it's what the machine learns. It's how quickly the machine can actually get that information that, that it's now trained to, to identify. That's where the true value is. So how do we accelerate that? One of my biggest needs right now is because we've got this data set, I need a lot of computing power. Like, So if NVIDIA wants to just, you know, call me up and say, hey, we have all the power you need. Amazing. I'll take that call. Um, but, you know, these, these, there are some real, real issues, I think, when we start to look at all of this data that we don't even really understand yet, developing the algorithms, and then having the computing power to process this stuff. Yeah, it's great. I've been thinking a lot about that, too. Humanitarian side, there's just so much data on aid activities and crises. It's great to be able to centralize that data you know, maybe in a distributed manner, but to just make it more accessible to everyone. Well, what, one of the one of the things that I thought of, and I don't know, do you do you remember the CD at Home project? No, okay, so this is okay. I'm going totally nerd out here, but like there was a screensaver you could have on your computer like a long time ago, and when you weren't using your computer, you were sharing your CPU resources with this the search for extraterrestrial life. Right? It was really super nerdy. I was part of that program. It's no longer. But this distributed uh, computing project, there's a lot of them like that. You know, I've even reached out to guys who were Ethereum developers that had these rigs that had like, you know, six GPUs on there that are running, for the record, the most stupid algorithms. Like who can do the fastest math problems so they can win the block on the blockchain? Why not pump all of this full of ocean data and have a massive global supercomputer I think that's a really cool way that we could do things. But we have to incentivize people. And that's one of the reasons why, too... With with uh, with blockchain, we we said, hey, look, you know what? If Mia wants to, if she wants to 
take a buoy, put it in the waters around her house. Well, you know, here's an STL file, and here's where you buy algae-based uh, filament where you can 3D print a buoy. Here's a raspberry. Go get a Raspberry Pi. You can go to actually, believe it or not, you can go to Target. You, they sell Raspberry Pis at Target, which is crazy. And then you can download our ISO. And guess what? Now you just do a, a basic configuration. And now it could be a temperature. It could be pH. It could be whatever. But now you're contributing data to the blockchain. Um, and that's it's like a it's like a gigantic core sample um, that's that's now confirmed by a number of different sensors that are all around you. And you know when we when we have a big buyer or we have a academia that says we we really want to know what the temperatures are or maybe it's surfline right surfline is a is a great uh, you know thing of data right they they analyze all this stuff to figure out where the swells are and what the waves are going to look like you know there could be a number of these different types of groups could even be gaming now when those individual data requirements are actually purchased by these groups instead of playing these ridiculous uh, uh, math algorithm games on the Ethereum blockchain to see who wins the block, you're actually contributing to a global movement using that computing power for a real purpose to hopefully help us better understand our, our shared environment. And so I think I think when we start thinking about ways like that to kind of answer your question, how can AI developers get involved? It's thinking with the mindset of rapid collaboration. I mean, nature doesn't plan. It rapid collaborates, and when things don't work, we break it. We start all over again, and that's that's why we end up with what we have. Wow, that's such a great summary. And in terms of your needs with this particular audience, you mentioned it just now, Jeremy. Is there anything that comes to mind for you, Susie? I think anyone out there has something that they can contribute, and I think that everyone has a skill set that they can already use and help, you know, as you're developing some machine learning for something for your job, you could be like, hey, how do I convert this and make it useful for the ocean? Mm. So I think, yeah, I think everyone has something they can do if they feel like it. Getting into it will probably lead them down a path of fun and fulfillment because, as Jeremy said, there are a lot of things in the ocean to get excited about. And I also think that using this quarantine time to maybe watch a few documentaries and educate yourself a little bit more. I mean, that never hurts. Absolutely. And with Ultramarine, is there anything you can invite people along to? Yeah, I mean, definitely check us out on our website, ultramarineocean.com. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. And yeah, follow along, join the community. Once we um, get to go out again and get to meet up in person again, we will have a bunch of meetups all around the place. We had a few plans that have been postponed. We had uh, you know, California and New York on the agenda, but also Europe. And so as things reopen, definitely follow us and you're invited to join every and anything that you see that might be fun for you. That sounds great. Thank you so much. And any, any of you want to give us one or two takeaways each? Anything you want to share about ocean, humanity, AI? Susie? Thank you so much. Any takeaways? Yeah, thank you so much for having us. And uh, I, yeah, I think our takeaways are let's uh, not let this crisis go un without any sort of positive coming out of it. Let's make sure we pay attention. Let's maybe come up with better ways of doing and restarting our lives. And uh, yeah, come join us at an ultramarine ocean event at some point down the line. That would be great. And Jeremy, thank you too. This has been amazing talking to you both. 
any more takeaways from yeah. you? You know, I think um, I think it's just important that, you know, I, I love these kinds of discussions. You know, in Hawaii, we, we say it's talking story. And I think sometimes when we are really allow ourselves to be able to kind of have this set of interchange, it's really beautiful. And I, I really want to encourage people that are listening to think about really what their superpowers are. I mean, I know it sounds it sounds kind of cliche, but I believe that there's going to be no Superman of the ocean, but all of us can be part of the Justice League. And so I, I employ every person that's listening right now to join up to the Justice League, you know, um, share your superpower with the world and let's figure out how we can work together in, in a rapid collaboration. And the way to find that superpower, just figure out what you care about. And I think you both care so much and that's just been your gateway to this phenomenal collaboration. We are so, so grateful for that. You guys are just brilliant. Thank you so much. And we'll just call it a day. That brings this edition of Humanitarian AI today to a close.